Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. It is a joy to get to be with you all tonight. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us in worship. So I'd love for us to, to pray before we open God's Word together. So would you please join me in prayer? Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for this time and this space that you have provided for us to stop and to think about what truly matters, uh, to reflect on the greatest gift that any human has ever received, the gift of our Savior, the gift of deliverance, the gift of hope and joy and peace in your Son, Jesus. So Lord, as we, as we look at Him tonight, as His entry into the world, as we reflect on that, we, we ask, God, that Your Spirit would do a work in our hearts, that He would help us to see and behold and adore our Savior. That's in His great name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas is a season of longing, and it's a time when it seems that people are comfortable admitting that they're longing for things. Uh, so comfortable, in fact, that we create lists detailing the things that we are longing for. Right? We call them Christmas lists, but in reality, they are longing lists. Uh, we got our, our five-year-old son's uh, longing list this week. This week, my wife has been shopping for months, but she got it this week. She said, hey, I want to give you my Christmas list. Like, that, that's great, son. Uh, but it's composed of five things. He's five years old, uh, so it's appropriate. And those five things were a blue blanket, a pack of gum, some tape, dinosaur band-aids, and lastly, his very own box of cookies. Uh, that's very good. Uh, now, thankfully, you know, this, this type of list is somewhat of a relief to us because we can come through on these things. <laughs> but one of the realities that we are confronted with in this season is that no matter how much of our list gets checked off, there remains a longing that no material thing can, can fulfill, that no holiday memory can satisfy, that no human relationship change in scenery, position, a title. None of those things can meet this particular need. Because deep down, we all long for something much greater. We all long for a deliverer. Someone who will come and will set things right. Well, friends, the thing that we are celebrating this evening, the thing that we celebrate at Christmas is that our deliverer has come. In the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah penned these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, friends, that child came 700 years after those words were written. And he came... <laughs> in the most unexpected way. And tonight, I would like to briefly, well, maybe, I don't know. I don't want to start off with a lie. I would like for us to, <laughs> to look at the beginning of Luke's description of Jesus's, our King's arrival into this world. 
So we're going to camp on Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, and from there we're going to unpack two themes. First, that, or first we're going to look at the power of the king, and second, we're going to look at the humility of the king. Jesus, our king and deliverer, is both powerful and humble. So let's start by looking at the power of the king. So Luke begins his account of the birth of Jesus like this. In verses 1 through 5 of Luke chapter 2, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Luke begins his account by establishing the historical context. He shows that Jesus is a historical figure who arrived at a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people. And this fits with Luke's overall intention in writing his gospel. See, the gospel of Luke, which is one of four records of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, the other three in the Bible are are named after after their respective authors, Matthew, Mark, and John. But Luke begins his account, his gospel account, with these words. In Luke chapter 1, we read, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." See, Luke's desire is to compile an orderly record based on eyewitness accounts of things that actually took place. And in doing this, he is showing us that Jesus is concerned with and has a deep impact on the real world. Now, this goes against a tendency that's become popular in cultures like ours, and that is the tendency to relegate religious claims or religion in general strictly to the private sphere. I think it's common for people to to react to messages about Jesus or religious messages, period, by saying something to the effect of like, oh, you're religious, that's that's fine, just go do it over there. Don't bring it out into the public. This isn't the place for it. But the problem with such a mentality is that ultimately it's disingenuous. Why? Because at heart, everyone is religious. See, religion refers to far more than rituals or communities. The author David Dark calls religion a, quote, controlling story. This is the story that we tell ourselves that we lean on in order to know that we're okay, that our lives matter. And this story, which everyone has, whether it is buffeted by a religious tradition, rationalism, or science, at some level, it rests on an unproven faith assumption. Think about the things that you value the most, your relationships, your love for your children, convictions about justice or beauty or truth, things that for most of us make our lives worth living. We tend to take for granted the fact that they matter, not because they've been empirically proven to matter, but we take it on faith. 
We're all religious in one way or another, and therefore we can't truly privatize religion. And the nature of Christianity won't allow you to do that because its primary claims aren't about what happens in the hearts of individuals. No, its primary claims are about events that took place in history. And Luke shows this by placing the story of Jesus in the days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. But Luke shows us that Jesus isn't merely concerned with real-world affairs, but he's also in control of them. Verse 1, if you look at it, it looks like a throwaway line, right? A decree went out. Who gets excited about decrees? Who gets excited about bureaucracy? That is essentially how the story of Jesus begins. Hey, there's this bureaucratic measure that went out. This is exciting, right? says like no one ever. But friends, verse 1 is huge. We don't want to just get past it so we can get to the action in the stable. No. Verse 1 is very significant. Why? Because Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem if God was going to remain true to his word. God said through the prophet Micah approximately 700 years prior to Jesus' birth, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." The birthplace of the promised ruler from God, the the Messiah, would be Bethlehem. Well, Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, about 90 miles north of Bethlehem. Traveling 90 miles for us is not really a big deal unless you have to go through L.A., and then it's a huge deal. But assuming that you don't have to do that, right, we we tend to not really think too deeply about a 90-mile journey. Many of you traveled far more than 90 miles to be here in this room, or you're looking at a longer journey in the next couple of days. But you wouldn't be thinking along those lines if you lived in the first century in the ancient Near East. That journey for Joseph and Mary would have taken about a week. It would have been long. It would have been expensive. It would have been potentially dangerous. And they wouldn't have done it of their own volition, especially while Mary was pregnant. So how did God get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? (laughs) Through the emperor of Rome. Crazy, right? He could have done it in in much easier, much less dramatic fashion. God did, I mean, it's not really less dramatic, but God did send angels to both Mary and Joseph. The angel could have slipped in the whole thing of, you know, Jesus is coming, he needs to be born in Bethlehem, the whole prophecy thing, right? So just start start your travel plans now. But that's not how he chose to do it. Instead, God decided to work through the most powerful person at the time, the most powerful person on the planet at the time, using him as a mere pawn in his scheme, a minor character in his overarching story. Caesar Augustus issued a decree, thereby fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy. And there's something poetic about God using Caesar Augustus in this way. Augustus, whose name was actually Octavian, was the ruler of the Roman Empire, which controlled a huge portion of the then-known world, which again would have made him one of the most powerful people in the then-known world. Octavian was the first Caesar to be given the title Augustus, so Augustus was more of a title than a proper name. 
and it means holy or revered. And up to that time, uh, up to the time when it was used for Octavian, it was reserved strictly for the, the gods in the Roman and the Greco-Roman pantheon. So it was under Augustus's rule that strides were taken towards making Caesars equivalent with the gods in the Greco-Roman mind. And at the time that Luke was writing, some Greek cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year, hailing him as Savior. There's even an ancient inscription calling him Savior of the whole world. But here, this man who is trying to equate himself with God is used as a pawn by the true God become man, showing us that King Jesus has power over everything. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. See, this is something that we all need to wrestle with. Now, on a night like tonight, there are many different things bringing us to church. Uh, for some of us, we may be here because we grew up going to church on Christmas Eve, and it doesn't really feel like Christmas unless we're at church on Christmas Eve. And if, that is, if that's the reason you're here, you are so welcome. We are glad to have you. Others might be here largely to appease someone in their immediate family. Uh, you know, it's Christmas. I want to make mom happy. I'll go to church. I can identify with that. I went to church for many years simply to make my mother happy. And if that's the case, that, if that's the reason that you are here this, uh, this evening, Again, you are welcome. It is so good that you're with us. But I want to encourage you to really wrestle with the person and the claims of Jesus. He is not a sentimental figure. He completely changed the course of history, and he deserves some serious consideration. And so if you can, keep coming, keep learning, keep encountering Jesus. We'd love to be on that journey with you. I would love to be on that journey with you. And if you're here tonight because you do believe, I think it is worth asking yourself honestly, does your life reflect the claim that is on the screen right now? Do you really believe that everything belongs to Jesus? The Christian author Paul Miller writes, many Christians haven't stopped believing in God We've just become functional deists, living with God at a distance. We view the world as a box with clearly defined edges. But the God who is able to use the most powerful ruler on the planet as a minor character in his story can do as he pleases. The angel who informed Mary of her miraculous pregnancy with Jesus declared to her, for nothing will be impossible with God. That was true then, and it remains true today. King Jesus is powerful. He is sovereign over the whole domain of our human existence, and the Christmas story confirms that. So friends, think for a minute. Where are you doubting Jesus' sovereignty, questioning his power, assuming that something is just too hard for him? Where are you struggling to find hope? Where is your faith wavering? May you be encouraged tonight by the truth that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Our King is powerful. But not only is He powerful, 
He is also humble. So let's look now at the humility of our king. So after making the 90-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, we read that the time came for her, being Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Where does Jesus' earthly story begin? In a palace? In a place of honor and prestige? No. In a stable where he is laid in a manger, a place where animals feed. Jesus was born a peasant. And that truth is confirmed later in chapter 2. When Jesus' parents took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord and offer sacrifice on his behalf as required by the law, this is the sacrifice that they offered. You see it in verse 24. They offered two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Normally, a lamb would have been required, but there was an exception in the law for the poorest Israelites. If they could not afford to offer a lamb, they were allowed to give these two types of birds instead. So Jesus, who owns everything, decides to come to us with nothing. He came to us in a humble estate, and he remained in that estate for the rest of his life, as can be seen in the warning that he gives to a would-be disciple. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, even after he gained this huge following where thousands of people were flocking to him, when we would expect, perhaps if we're cynical, that this type of leader would start requiring money and would start getting multiple wives and all the things that happens in crazy situations, or when we'd start to expect that sort of thing, Jesus wants nothing of it. Instead, he remains poor, warning others of the cost of following him. Even at the very end, the final week of his life, when he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with people hailing him as king, where he could have claimed power for himself, how does he come into Jerusalem, the, king, the kingly city? Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He doesn't come on a mighty steed, sword outstretched. He doesn't come in a golden chariot. No, he comes on a donkey. This is the humility of our king. A book that gets a a lot of traction in our house right now is uh, The Little Engine That Could. Uh, Our five-year-old and two-year-old are obsessed. We read this book a lot. Um, I won't quote it for you now, but I could if I wanted to. so if you're not familiar with the story, it tells the story of a, of a little engine or a small, small train that breaks down. And it's tragic, really, because this train is carrying uh, dolls and toys and, and treats and also good things for little boys and girls to eat. And it needs to make its way over a mountain because the kids on the other side of the mountain are waiting for the goods from this train. Well, it can't go any further. Three trains pass by this little train that's broken down. One of them is too old and tired to help, but two of them are more than capable of helping. But they refuse to because they see themselves as being far too important 
Each of them say something to the effect of, why would I help you? I have big important things to do. Now I'm conflating books. There's another. It doesn't matter. If you know the little blue engine, now you know that I'm quoting that, but it's okay. Um, but both of these trains look at, at this broken down train and, and they say, they just decide, I am far too important. Why would I lower myself to help the likes of you? I think this is an attitude that many of us have come to expect of powerful people in our culture. And I think if we're honest, this is an attitude that we ourselves take on from time to time. It's not uncommon for us to look at tasks and say, no, that's below me. Or there are times where we grow weary of helping certain types of people because, you know, they're always asking for help. Or why would I lower myself to that standard? My friends, that is the opposite of what Jesus does. And praise God for that. Jesus had all the power in the world, and yet he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus remained humble to the very end of his life, not looking at anyone as being beneath him. And that includes us. Despite our sin, despite our lostness, despite our pride, Jesus, our humble Savior, reaches out to us in love. Jesus, our humble Savior, reaches out to you in love. Our King is powerful. He can do whatever he wants. But our King is also humble, and the thing that He wants to do is reach out to you in love. This, friends, is the hope and the joy of Christmas. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the reality that he is unlike any king that we have seen on this earth. Lord, he has power that is unimaginable. Your word tells us that everything that was made was made through him. And yet, he didn't see equality with you as a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, may we learn from his humility. May we continually seek after it. May we be changed by it. Lord, tonight, help us to trust in your power and help us to be captivated by your love and grace, by your humble service. And Lord, may we reflect it to the world. We love you. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.